All right, Revelation chapter 12. As Benjamin said, this is one of the easiest chapters in the Bible. And I'm sure you're all looking forward to what I'm going to make of this. Before we get into Revelation 12, I want to, I want to do just a little bit of work and tell you where, where we are in the book. So here's the, the outline that we've kind of used of the book of Revelation. You haven't seen this in a while, uh, so I'm pulling it back uh, out and, and dusting it off so you can see where we are. Basically, the book of Revelation is made up of these four grand visions that John has while he's on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. Uh, and, and we're in the middle of the second of those visions, from chapter 4 to chapter 16. It's the, the longest of the visions, and we're, we're, we, we've been looking at the, the, that vision begins with this, this throne room scene of God, showing us that God is on, the, is on the throne, and that He is the one who is orchestrating all the affairs of the world. And then there are these three sets of seven, these three sets of seven judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And we've looked at the seals and the trumpets already as God is pouring out judgment on the world and its inhabitants. But between the trumpets and the bowls, there's this, this break from chapters 12 to 14. And, and one of the reasons for this break is because as, as we've been looking at and seeing how God in His sovereignty is pouring out these judgments on the unbelieving world that refuses to repent, as, as, as the book is revealed in these grand and sweeping terms, God's activity in, in history and the righteous judgment He's bringing on the world, you think about the original readers who were undergoing persecution. They were seeing increasing oppression and opposition, martyrdom. So a natural question that we might ask here, certainly that the original readers might have asked, is if God is on the throne, if He's pouring out His judgments on the world, then why does it seem that God's people are the ones that are doing most of the suffering? What's causing that? And Revelation 12 to 14 takes this break in what's happening in the book. It introduces us clearly and explicitly to the reason why God's people suffer in the world. In these chapters, we're going to meet what's been called the unholy trinity, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And it's this triumvirate that stands behind the suffering and oppression of God's people. And foremost among them is who we meet in Revelation 12, Satan, our ancient foe, as Luther put it, the great enemy of God's people. And we're going to learn that that opposition, that oppression that Christians face in the world from John's time up till now is ultimately a result of the work of Satan, that Satan desires to, to derail God's plan and destroy His people. But it also reveals that He's already been decisively defeated by Christ, and therefore Christians can overcome Him through the gospel. And so, as we look at this chapter, we're, we have to remember that this chapter, is, is a, it's an epic story. You see it in the kind of imagery and symbolism that, that's used. It sounds like something that was written by C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien. Right? It's, it's this, this epic, almost mythological story. That doesn't mean that it's not true, but it has that kind of quality of this symbolism. And we're going to look, as we're, as we're told that, that, that this is a sign, we're going to look for that symbolic significance. And and understand the epic story, its, its significance for us. And so, first we're going to look at the characters in this story, and then we'll look at the plot, kind of what happens 
in this story. Then we're going to come back around to the, the climactic centerpiece of the story in verse 11 and think through its implications for us. So first, and briefly, we'll look at the, the characters of the story. We want to get a grasp on what the story is about, who is in the story before we can look at what actually happens in the story. And there's, there's four characters that we want to we wanna look at that will help us understand. And as we've already read through the passage, you will have heard them. There's the woman, the dragon, the child, and then the woman's other children, which you see at the very end of the story. I'm going to skip the woman for now because she might be the most uh, difficult one to identify. We'll start with the ones that are much easier to identify. Start in verses 3 and 4. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. This great red dragon, a terrifying specter. It's very clear just from this, these verses. This is the bad guy, right? We, we, we don't need to wonder if, who, who's, who the villain is. It's very clear. This is the bad guy. And then we get his identity confirmed in verse 9, that the great dragon was thrown down. Who is the great dragon? He's the serpent of old. He's the one that deceived Eve in the garden. He's the devil, the slanderer, the liar, and Satan, which means the adversary. He's the great enemy of God's people. So the dragon is Satan. And then the child, Satan stands before this, this woman who is ready to give birth, and she gives birth to a child. Who is the child? In verse 5, it says that the woman gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to His throne. So the child is Christ. That, that terminology of ruling the nations with a rod of iron, that originates in Psalm 2, which is a psalm about the coming of God's Messiah to rule. And in Revelation 19, that's explicitly used of Christ, who when He comes again, it says, and He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. So the dragon is Satan, the child is Christ, and then verse 17, we find out that the woman actually has other children. The, these children, the rest of her children, are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So these are Christians. So then, who's the woman? Well, the woman, in a sense, we have to say it's, it's a metaphorical and symbolic mother of both Christ and Christians. It's the one from whom both Christ and Christians come. That is, it's the whole believing people of God. Faithful Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. The woman is the believing people of God. So those are the characters. But what is the vision describing? In a sense, it serves like a parable. Just like Jesus simplified and summarized uh, the history of Israel in the parable of the vineyard, here the history of the world is, is symbolically recounted in its most basic terms of a cosmic struggle between God and Satan and God's people. 
that Satan tries to derail God's plan and destroy his people, but that he's been de decisively defeated by Christ. So let's look now at the, the plot of this story. Look in verse 4. Satan tries to derail God's plan. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. This is talking about Satan's attempts to destroy Christ during his earthly ministry. And you say, well, when, when did that happen? Well, a few times. Almost immediately after he was born, Herod sought to kill him. He ordered the death of all of the, the male children to and under in Bethlehem. And Mary and Joseph had to flee to Egypt. That wasn't just Herod's decision. Standing behind that is the work of Satan, seeking to destroy God's Messiah. And then again, Jesus begins His earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 4, and He's taken out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Unlike Adam and Eve who failed the temptation in the garden, Jesus stands in the wilderness and resists Satan's temptations and says Satan had to leave until an opportune time. And then ultimately the crucifixion. The crucifixion certainly is is the work of, of God. It says it happens according to the predetermined plan of God. It was God's plan to rescue sinners. And yet at the same time, it was also the work of Satan. In Luke 22, we read that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus is, is breaking bread with his disciples. And it says that the Satan entered into Judas Iscariot and Jesus said, go and do what you're going to do. That it is Satan who causes this betrayal. Because Satan is trying to destroy God's plan. He's trying to derail everything. He's been trying to do it since the garden, since he was promised that he would be destroyed, that his head would be crushed by a descendant of the woman, Christ. Satan, trying to derail God's plan, thinks, I can get the Messiah crucified. But what actually appears to be a defeat for Christ is His great victory. What appears to be a victory for Satan is actually His great defeat. Satan tries to derail God's plan, but he's been defeated by Christ. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male son, a male child, who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to His throne. This, in a sense, collapses the life of Christ to include just His birth and His ascension. But it's meant as a sort of shorthand for everything in between, that, that in the work of Christ and culminating in His death, His resurrection, and His ascension and enthronement at the right hand of God, Satan has been decisively defeated. Christ is, is caught up, and corresponding to that, Satan is cast down. Verse 7, and there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Or take this to be happening 
the same time as the, the ascension of Christ, as, as Christ is caught up to heaven, Satan is at the same time being cast down. There's no longer a, a place for him there. And understand that this is not, as much as this is portrayed to us like this, this gigantic battle, this is not some pitched battle in which it's possible that Satan could win and, and, and the angels of God just happen to eke out a victory. This is not a last-minute buzzer beater. The victory was won by Christ on the cross and in His resurrection. And what happens as He ascends is Michael and his angels are just on mop-up duty right? Michael is serving as the bailiff, in a sense, and his angels, disbarring Satan and who's held in contempt and tossing him from the divine courtroom. See, in the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, Satan is decisively defeated and cast from heaven. And I want to reflect on that for a moment because this is, this is telling us something about the reality in which, in which we live, that there is something crucial and decisive that happens with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ in the, in the defeat of Satan. Look at verse, verse 10, I heard a, a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. Jesus has already won. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom and the authority of our Christ have come. Now. Jesus is one. And sometimes we can get so worked up over what's happening in our world and our culture and think that things are going from bad to worse to such an extent that we forget that. In fact, when we look at the world around us, we think that there might be evidence that Satan's actually winning. But he's not. In fact, far from there being evidence that he's winning, things that we see in the world around us are evidence that he's actually already lost, and he's angry about it, and his time is short. Verse 12, for this reason, rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them, because Satan has been cast down. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has only a short time. And I think our failure to grasp onto that and devolve into despair or anger may reveal that the victory that we want is not the victory that Christ has won. We may be more like the disciples who wanted Christ to win a victory of political and military power so that they could really stick it to those godless Romans. We tend to want things to look like we're winning here, but we're never promised that. And it also may reveal that the way that Christ has won this victory through His humility and suffering and death is not the way that we want to follow Him in victory. But we don't conquer through force, we conquer through faithfulness. We don't conquer through power, we conquer through perseverance. And that's what Revelation is so much about faithfully persevering in Christ. That's the way that the people of God win and overcome Satan. 
So the next time you're tempted to complain about how bad everything is and how it seems like Satan is winning, remember, it's not that Satan is winning now and then Jesus is going to win later. Jesus has already won. He's victorious right now. Does that mean that everything is the way that it should be right now? No, of course not. We still wait for Jesus to come back and make all things new. But it does mean that whatever happens, we should never sink into the despair, uh, the unbelieving despair that Satan might win. He won't. He can't. He's already lost. As we saw in verse 12, his defeat is decisive and certain, but it's not final and realized yet. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So what does he do now? Satan turns his rage toward the people of God. He couldn't get Christ. He couldn't stop God's plan. And so now he turns his rage, knowing his time is short, to the people of God. He persecutes God's people. Look at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That is the people of God. Again, in verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. Satan turns his anger towards God's people, persecutes them, oppresses them, opposes them. And yet, we see here that the people of God are divinely protected and preserved. Verse 6 The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished there for 1,260 days. And just as a reminder, we talked about this last week. We could take that 1,260 days as this symbolic representation of the entirety of the time between Christ's first coming and second coming. And it corresponds with 42 months and later in this chapter, time, times, and time and a half. We don't have time to get into to all of those things right now, but this is talking about the preservation of God's people through the ages. And it's laden with this imagery from the Exodus, right? The being being given the the wings of an eagle as we read about God's preservation again in verse 14, verse 16. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Then verse 16, the earth helped the woman, the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Using this imagery from the Exodus, talking about God's people being in the wilderness, being cared for, nourished in the wilderness, being rescued with these, the, the wings of the great eagle, recalls how God says that He bore Israel out of Egypt on eagle's wings, that God is protecting His people. So the, the idea is that despite Satan's rage, despite his persecution, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. And yet, God's people will still suffer. Satan is unable to fully destroy, to snuff out the people of God, but that does not stop him from making war on Christians. And this is what John's original audience was beginning to experience. Right in verse 17, so the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
Satan's tried to derail God's plan, destroy his people. He's been decisively defeated by Christ, but he still desires to persecute Christians. Now, what's the point of pulling back this cosmic curtain and telling this, this sort of parable of what's happening in the world? One, it shows us that the opposition, the oppression that Christians face in the world is the direct result of the raging of Satan against the people of God, not because he's winning, but because he's already lost, knowing that his power is broken and his time is short. And while he can't win, he's still dangerous. But through the gospel, Christians can overcome him. And this brings us back to the centerpiece of this passage in verse 11, that Christians can overcome Satan through the gospel because of the blood of Christ dismisses his accusations, because the word of Christ cuts through his lies, and the work of Christ shatters his threats of death. Let's look at verse 11. Well, beginning in verse 10, the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Keep in mind, Satan's primary weapons when he's attacking Christians, contrary to what you might see in movies, are not apparitions and demonic possessions. Three of his primary weapons are accusation, deception, and the fear of death. But because of the gospel, Satan and his angels and his demons have been effectively disarmed. First, the blood of Christ dismisses Satan's accusations. So one of his primary weapons is, is accusation, right? He, in verse 10, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He stands before God and accuses them day and night. And yet, now the accuser has been thrown down. And it says that they, the, the, the brethren, the people of God, overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. Satan's accusations, if Satan is pictured as this prosecuting attorney bringing accusations against God's people, Satan's accusations are rendered empty and powerless through the gospel. If the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, then Satan no longer has any grounds on which to accuse us. Think about this. This is from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your transgressions, He made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting in decrees against us, which is hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's Satan and his demons, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross. Did you, did you catch that? Christ disarmed Satan. He defanged the serpent through the cross because it is through the death of Christ that the debt that we owed for our sin was paid. And so Satan can no longer stand before God to accuse us and demand that we pay that debt because that debt's already been paid. 
Now, if you haven't trusted Christ, that debt is still outstanding. You can only pay the minimum for so long. If you refuse to consent for Christ to pay that debt for you, you will pay it yourself eternally. But if you will come to Christ and trust Him to be your Savior, then that debt you will have incurred because of your sin will be fully and finally paid, nailed to the cross. And all that stands between you and the life and salvation promised in the gospel is your own unwillingness to turn and come and allow Jesus to pay for your sin. So come to Christ. Jesus Himself invites you as truly as if He were standing here in my place. Come to Christ. He offers Himself freely to you to be your Savior. And if you rely on Him alone to pay that debt that you owe, then life and salvation will be yours. The blood of Christ dismisses Satan's accusations, and the Word of Christ cuts through Satan's lies. Another of Satan's primary weapons is deception, right? In Revelation 12, 9, he's called the deceiver of the whole world. Jesus Himself calls Him a liar and the father of lies. We see this in, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says that the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan deceives the whole world. But Christians can overcome Satan's lies. Revelation 12.11, they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. Now here, testimony doesn't mean the personal account of you becoming a Christian. We do use it in that way, but that's not what it means here. Here, testimony means the testimony of Jesus, that is, the truth of the gospel. And that through the gospel, God is freeing people from the lies and deception of Satan. Again, 2 Corinthians 4 after it says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, we read that God is also the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that it is through the, the preaching of the gospel that God is unblinding the minds of those who have been deceived by the lies of Satan. And you who are Christians, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you were sitting in this room when through the preaching of the Word, the Holy Spirit opened your mind to see the lies of Satan for what they are and understand and believe the gospel. The Word of Christ cuts through Satan's lies, and then the work of Christ shatters Satan's threats of death. Another of Satan's primary weapons is holding people in the fear of death. We see this in Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.15 tells us that Satan has held the power of death and has enslaved people in the fear of death. But again, Christians can overcome the fear of death through the gospel. Revelation 12, 11, they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Why? What allows them to do this? Well, again, we know from Hebrews Two, that it is through death, through His death on the cross, that Christ rendered powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, that He might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their life. 
that it is through the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the eternal life that is promised to those who believe that the fear of death loses its sting. Because the work of Christ has secured eternal life for those who trust Him, there is, for the Christian, no need to fear death. That's why Paul is able to say to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, just because these things are true doesn't mean that we always live as if they're true, right? The gospel has freed us from Satan's accusations, but that doesn't mean that we never feel accused, that we never believe those accusations. The gospel's freed us from Satan's lies and deceptions, but that doesn't mean that we never believe those lies or allow ourselves to be deceived. The gospel's freed us from Satan's threats of death, but that doesn't mean that we never fear death anymore. And so, we need to constantly preach these gospel truths to ourselves and to others because we are so prone to forget them. We're so prone to listening to the lies of Satan that we forget that what he is saying isn't true, and that it's what, it's what God says that is true. One of the reasons we struggle with this so much in, in the words of the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones is that we spend all our time listening to ourselves regurgitate Satan's lies rather than, than preaching to ourselves with God's truth. Satan would love nothing more than to, than to wreck our, our faith by making us doubt the goodness and grace of God in the gospel. And while we are freed from his lies and accusations and threats, we are so prone to slip back into that fear and despair that they're calculated to cause. And so we need to do more listening to the Word of God and preaching to ourselves rather than listening to the lies of Satan and regurgitating those back to ourselves. So if you're a Christian and you feel accused because you know the sin of your past, you know the sin of your present, Satan is at work to discourage you and drive you to despair through his lies, his accusations, his threats of death. You're not really saved. A Christian would never do that. God couldn't forgive you for that. Did He really promise you eternal life? Not someone like you. But while He may accuse you to yourself, He cannot accuse you before God. He has no right, no ground to stand on. His evidence is inadmissible in God's court. Why? Because all of the evidence that He has is the debt of your sin, and that debt was nailed to the cross of Christ. So when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? Do I look to Satan and listen to his lies and accusations and sink into despair and unbelief? Do I look at myself and try to convince myself that I'm not really as bad or as guilty as he says I am? That maybe if I can convince myself that I'm really actually a good person, then maybe those, those feelings of accusation will, will go away. Do I look to others hoping that they will convince me that I'm not a bad person, that they will convince me, oh, no, God must really love you. You're such a good person. Or do I look upward and see Him there who made an end of all my sin? 
And do I remind myself that because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free? For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. That's how we overcome Satan and his works. So while it's true that Satan rages against God's people now, it merely reveals that his ultimate defeat has already been secured by Christ and that his time is short. And so while we as Christians and Christians, our brothers and sisters all over the world, are indeed the targets of his assaults, we can overcome him and his lies and his accusations and his threats through the gospel, which dismisses his accusations, cuts through his lies, and shatters his threats because Jesus has already won. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that through the gospel, your Son, the Lord Jesus, has already won the victory, that we follow Him in triumphal procession, that He has disarmed the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And Lord, we long for Him to come back and and finalize that victory, to put death to death. Lord, help us as as we all struggle in various ways to believe that which we know to be true. Help us. Give us grace that we might believe that we can overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony and that we not need, need not fear death for those who have been given eternal life. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday.